This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome. This is the Hindu's In Focus podcast. Today we're looking at Russia's war in Ukraine that continues. With me, India's former ambassador to Moscow, Ambassador D.B. Venkatesh Varma, to discuss just where this conflict is heading and whether India's position on Russia is going to see any changes. Ambassador Varma, thanks so much for joining us here at The Hindu. Thank you for inviting me for this podcast. Just to start with, we're more than 40 days since President Putin announced military operations, what he called it, in Ukraine, what the rest of the world calls an invasion. Where do you think the war is headed at present? We've seen many stories emerging just in the last 24 to 48 hours of Russian troops pulling out and in their wake, mass graves being found in in places like Bucha, other places like Mariupol have seen the scars of the retreating Russian army, if you like. Where do you think this war is headed at present? Well, we are six weeks into the Russia-Ukraine war. We're also six weeks into Russia-West global conflict. I think we are coming towards the end of the first phase. And at the end of the first phase, after six weeks, we have two major stalemates. On the military front, as you mentioned, the Russians are pulling back from their major deployments around Kyiv and uh, Chernihiv, and they are repositioning themselves to Donbass. That is the first stalemate. I think the Russians would have hoped for more. They have got much less, but they are repositioning themselves to the major battles that will come up in Donbass. The second major stalemate is the stalemate along the economic front. As you would recall, the United States and its allies imposed very severe sanctions right at the beginning. And the expectation was that the shock of these very major sanctions would uh, crash the Russian ruble, create economic instability, and bring about a change in the political views of how Moscow was conducting this war. There too, it has been a stalemate. Ruble fell to 140. Today, it is 85. The Russians have turned the tables on the European gas supplies. But however, these two stalemates uh, are on the brink of two major escalations. I think there we are looking towards a very major escalation of the military situation in, uh, in, uh, in eastern Ukraine. As you would uh, notice that in the last two weeks, there has been a major influx of American and NATO weaponry into Ukraine. So the Ukrainian army will be fairly uh, well equipped this time. There's no element of surprise. So a major military battle is, is going up. The economic warfare, I think, has been a very major dimension of this conflict, has now reached a new, a new crescendo, so to speak. The allegations of war crimes that have come up in the last two days, horrible as they are, but are still part of a larger process of generating additional Western pressure on Russia. And you've seen the comments directed against President Putin as a war criminal. So I would say, unfortunately, prognosis is very pessimistic. The prospects for peace are less now than they were a week ago. Russia and Ukraine have been talking, five or six rounds of talking, and they have agreed tentatively on a non-nuclear, non-alliance Ukraine and a non-deployment of offensive weapons, question mark on Donbass and on Crimea. But I would really find it very difficult to see that uh, this track would uh, would go forward given the, the two major escalation levels that we are looking at. So 
unfortunately, I think the prognosis is not, it's a very pessimistic one. Right. And as you said, it is pessimistic because of the situation on the ground, but also in what is perceived as the stalemate. One on the one side, the Russian sort of plans for, in, you know, getting Ukraine to follow its word, its military campaign against the Ukraine. But on the other hand, the Western world or the world, uh, the countries that are part of the sanctions regime between 30 to 40 countries led by the US and EU have not been able to effect change in Russia's behavior simply by putting these sanctions together. Before we go any further, I do want to ask you how you think these allegations of war crimes are changing the battleground at all. Do you think that the Western bloc, if you like, that's ranged against Russia is now going to make the war crimes actually what they pin that pin the entire war on? Or do you think this is going to become a much larger issue at multilateral organizations in particular? Yes, indeed. I also forgot to mention that part of the pushback that has come from Russia, President Putin's own popularity in Russia has increased to over 80%. It was hovering around 60% when the war began. And that is thing only to be expected because countries tend to rally around their leaders when and the narrative in Russia is that the West is out to get them. And this is a fight uh, not merely about Ukraine. There's also a fight about where Russia and Russia's place in the world, which, of course, feeds into the narrative that is now coming out of the West. Uh, I mean, the images coming out of Bucha are, are horrible. You know, there, there is no condoning uh, war crimes. But I suspect these are not the only instances of war crimes being undertaken either by the Russians or by the Ukrainians. There have been videos circulating around of how Ukrainians have ill-treated Russian prisoners of war. But that said, the public mood in the West is very, very hostile. And that is being, I think, drummed up, uh, so to speak, probably from their point of view for valid reasons, including in France. President Macron has been in the forefront of asking for additional sanctions on this. Now, asking for war crimes tribunal against Russia, a country such as Russia, against President Putin, is defining your war aims, your conflict aims, in possibly the most absolutist terms. And uh, therefore, if you pitch it at that level, then where is, where is the space for accommodation? So the space for accommodation between Russia and Ukraine, in fact, spills into insignificance compared to the conflict that is now arisen between Russia and the West, which I have said in my writings, it's not just a conflict, it is almost a crusade. We can debate who's right and wrong, but the fact is the conflict is being pitched extremely high level of confrontation. And unfortunately, we don't see countries easy to get in, but when you define confrontation in such absolute terms, they are very difficult to find exit gates out of such uh, situations. It's interesting, you know, in all of this, Many had assumed that when the 20,000 odd students, Indian students and Indian citizens from the Ukraine had been brought out, that actually that may have been an end to India's direct involvement, engagement with the Ukraine war. Yet what we've seen over the last two weeks have been a flurry of diplomatic visits, dignitaries, officials, ministers coming to Delhi. I think we counted at last count about there had been 15 visits over a period of maybe 12 to 13 days. Most of them, I would say, with the exception perhaps of the Chinese foreign minister and maybe the foreign ministers Oman and Mexico, most of them came with the specific purpose of trying to get the Indian government to change its position. 
They asked for a shift in the UN position. They asked for a shift in India's decision to procure more oil from Russia. And they discouraged India from setting up alternative payment mechanisms. So I wanted to ask you to, to begin with, do you think that the idea of putting pressure on India to shift its position has worked? Do you think that there is any kind of a change of thinking in New Delhi? First, to begin with, I think Operation Ganga that was uh, undertaken by the government was a success, a great relief for Indian nationals and for the elite students. And I think Prime Minister Modi's personal equation with President Putin helped extract our Indian students from a very active combat zone, which was in Sumi. So, you know, all's well that ends well as far as the Indian students and Indian nationals are concerned. But you're right, we assume that was only a dimension in which India was involved, but that was, it turns out, only the beginning. Now, we've had several visitors, as you, as you recall, but almost all of them came with the same talking point. And there is, I think we should recognize in the West, one single talking point. There is a sanctions coalition. It, they see amongst themselves certain clarity in what they want. They see amongst themselves a certain solidarity, uh, which is political in nature. And they see among themselves what is to what is the nature of the cost that they are willing to pay for the sanctions to, to be taken forward. Now, we, we are not parties to the Russia-Ukraine conflict, nor are we parties to the Western campaign to absolutely lay a siege to the Russian economy. You know, we are not. Imagine for a moment if we had, as many of our commentators had commented, it would have been better if we had voted in favor of the first United Nations Security Council resolution around the 26th of February. None of these visitors would have come. India would have been taken for granted. So I think the first lesson to learn is uh, to reiterate is that please don't sign blank checks in this period of great turmoil. We need to look out for ourselves. Uh, we have substantive interests. We will, our doors will be open for dialogue. We will listen to other people's concerns, but we would expect our concerns also to be taken into account. And across the board, from the Chinese foreign minister to the several parade of West envoys that came, and including with Foreign Minister Lavrov, I think this message was said. And part of the message that we have given is that we would like a, a reduction in violence and a peace settlement to come about through, peer, through dialogue because the collateral damage of a conflict that we are not party to in any way. We are not neutral, we are not fence-sitters, but we are a non-belligerent state. And the consequences that each of these parties to this conflict take for granted vis-a-vis -vis India is something that we would, uh, you know, we don't like, and there will be a pushback. And I think it is to the credit of the government and Prime Minister Modi that, you know, the message that has really come out is that India will speak up, India will speak up for peace, but India will also speak up for its own interests. And I think that message has gone uh, gone through, which is, I think, the f essential first step to say that India is an essential interlocutor, not a passive bystander in this conflict. And I think this conversation will go on. But I think without this first step, I think India would be just brushed aside. And I think the value of our abstention in the Security Council and subsequently in and our statements that we've made, I think, have, uh, have held us in good stead in the real politic world of, of diplomacy. Right. Yeah, you use the word real politic. And so I do want to ask you, the abstention at the UNSC was just the first. In fact, we counted about 11 votes. 
if you go through the UN Security Council, the UN General Assembly, the IAEA, the Human Rights Council, all of which places India actually abstained from any resolution that was put out. And we've heard some of the voices even in Parliament, where up till now there had been a kind of broad consensus on uh, the government's foreign policy. We are now hearing voices in Parliament saying, how is it that India cannot actually criticize what seems to be wrong, that there is an aggressor in this uh, in this conflict, that aggressor is Russia, and Russia has been con- conducting an operation, as I said, more than 40 days now. Why is it not possible for India to simply say that we think this is wrong? So far, none of the statements actually name Russia from the Indian side. Uh, Russia did cross a very big red line in terms of transgressing sovereignty and territorial integrity of another state. But there are several other red lines that have been crossed, which have led to this dramatic crash, train crash of European security in the post-Cold War period. NATO expansion, the lack of accommodation of Russian interests in Eastern and Central Europe, the absolutely aggressive postures that have been taken by some of the smaller states of Europe, both in Central and Eastern Europe. Now, you have got into a train wreck where all the countries involved are somehow partially responsible. And today, what do we see? I mean, this process of engagement has led to a devastation of a country, tragic as it is, and with the negative effects impacting across the region and, uh, and globally. Now, a mere condemnation of a certain section of, uh, of the reality, I think, is not going to help. I think keeping doors open for dialogue, keeping doors open for resolution, lending our weight in for, in terms of toning down tensions, toning down conflict, and toning down war aims. I think there is a message to be given out to uh, Russia that please conclude and limit your war aims in Ukraine, number one. We need to send out a, a message to our Western friends, the United States and its allies, you know, please tone down. The, the means and methods in which you are you're conducting the economic war with Russia because it, it sort of affects us as well. We are an agreed party. I don't think we should be held accountable to the fact that, you know, uh, we have not stood up and spoken. You know, what about our grievances in, in terms of the negative impact, in terms of energy, uh, you know, the food grain prices, the lack of supplies, and the fact in the disruption of our relations with Russia? Uh, which is uh, continues to be for us a very important partner. In fact, as you mentioned, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov was in Delhi. In fact, towards the end of that flurry of visitors that we saw, in fact, many of the visitors from the West appeared to have only planned their visits when they had learned that the Russian Foreign Minister was coming here. You were until recently India's ambassador to Moscow. You met with Mr. Lavrov uh, many times. So I did want to ask you, what do you think was the purpose of Mr. Lavrov's visit, and do you think that purpose was achieved? Yes, the purpose was achieved because there was a public demonstration, public viewing of the fact that we are not shy to deal with our friends, even in terms of great difficulties. This is a favor we are returning to Russia, for Russia has given given us that favor in the past, number one. Number two, this is not merely an issue of black and white. This is not a conflict just between democracies and autocracies. 
Uh, there are very few takers to this clean distinction that is being drawn. And that is part of this absolutist vision of this conflict that has now emerged between Russia and the West. But we also have very practical issues to discuss with the, uh, uh, with the Russian foreign minister. You know, our, our banking issues are in the, you know, have to be reworked. Our energy ties have to be reworked. Our defense ties have to be looked at. I mean, these are, uh, these are longstanding relations. And in terms of forwarding the message, I think the Russian side has heard it very clearly from Ali that India wishes, expects, and in fact would see in its favor a toning down of conflict, a cessation of conflict, and some peace settlement in Russia and Ukraine. It is not just for regional stability, it's not just good for Russia and Ukraine, it is good for us as well. And hearing it from a close partner such as India, I think uh, adds to the richness of the conversation that we've had with Russia, which of course began with Prime Minister's three telephone conversations uh, with, uh, with President Putin. So the doors in the major chanceries of the world are open to Indian opinion, Indian positions matter. And I think uh, in the last uh, week or so, these have been spelled out very clearly in Delhi. As you pointed out, Indian positions matter because India has not given that blank check to either side and said that, you know, take our worries into consideration as well. Do you think if it does emerge that India has picked a side, that in fact, India's India could lose some of its credibility? In other words, if India was not seen as neutral, as non-aligned, as balanced in this conflict, could India actually lose out on the international state? Well, let our international partners dare us to do that. We will see. Because this whole notion that our partners will hold us to account for positions we have taken, I think this is something that we we should, you know, we should dispel. There are issues. We are willing to explain where we come from. But we refuse to be taken for granted. And we refuse to be taken for granted either way in terms of the, the support for what Russia is doing in Ukraine or support for the measures that uh, the West is, is trying to conduct vis-a-vis Russia. You know, both we will stand very firmly in favor of our own interests. You know, we have very specific interests with regard to Russia. We have very specific interests with regard to the stability of the Eurasian continent. And we will stand up for that. And uh, if countries are, are disregarding the consequences of this uh, expanding the Russia-Ukraine conflict to a global level, I think they should know that India has very specific interests to defend. Right. I I asked this because of the visitors we discussed, there were at least three or four, including the European Union Special Envoy, the German National Security Advisor, the UK Foreign Secretary, and then, of course, the US Deputy NSA, who came to Delhi and said there are consequences for countries that will build these payment mechanisms to deal with Russia in a manner of subverting our sanctions against them. The others may not have said things as plainly, but in in various measures said that they would not be happy with India either constructing this payment mechanism or increasing oil imports from Russia. Uh, Should India worry about sanctions? No, India should be engaged in dialogue with all our partners. But there are certain essential parts of our international engagement, which includes a sustenance relationship with Russia that is non-negotiable. 
we are not part of the sanctions coalition vis-a-vis the United States and its Western allies against Russia. These are not based on international law. At the same time, we are not interested in deliberately trying to see how we can sabotage the sanctions regime that they are conducting vis-a-vis. But we will look after our interests and these interests are strategic. We have a strong uh, relationship with Russia. And I think this has to be taken into account. And I think this notion of consequences is not a one history. You know, there are consequences to us. We will, of course, you know, also, we can also reciprocate. But that is not a path, I, I guess, is something that we want to go down. We are open for dialogue. We would urge our partners to see where we are coming from. And I think as a result of these meetings in Delhi, there is, I think, a greater sensitivity and a greater understanding of where India has come from. So put to put India in the dock as part of a larger coalition for a conflict which has escalated without consultation with India, without taking into our interest India's interests, and the notion that we will somehow, you know, turn over, I think is just a wrong, con- you know, a wrong conclusion to to have. And I think uh, many of our uh, guests who came to Delhi have been disabused of this of these notions right and yet five years ago when the u.s trump administration asked india to what it called zero out oil imports from iran and subsequently from venezuela threatening of course other sanctions including the CAFSA sanctions against india the same government the modi government did actually accept that uh, demand and and did uh, zero out its oil intake from iran which was actually one of its cheapest oil sources from Venezuela as well. At that time, why do you think the difference? And do you think it was a mistake to have given in the last time? No, this is the first time we are, they are imposing such massive economic siege on a country of Russia's size. This has never been done in history before. Nobody knows the onward consequences of this. There is always this law of unintended consequences at, at play. People in Washington and Brussels probably know how this has started. I bet no one knows how this is going to end. Which capital in Western Europe or in the United States predicted that the the ruble will be back to 85 on the 5th of April? So, you know, you can't set a a flamethrower into a building and say that it is only one part of the building that you will burn down. You know, you might end up bringing down the entire edifice of international cooperation and globalization as we know it. So we have to be very careful. In, in, in sort of assessing the consequence, firstly for ourselves and for our interests. And, and let us see which countries sort of are sensitive to the interests that we have. And that itself is a very useful sorting out exercise. And, you know, we will sort out those who are truly friends with us and those who wish to only consider us as, uh, as, as fellow travelers without a mind of our own. We have interests and we have specific ways of pursuing them. Right. Maybe what I'm trying to ask really is that if when it was Iran, which was, as you said, you know, much more isolated area and much more simpler sanctions being put against them, if the Indian government actually gave in on that, the question being asked now is why is India refusing to shift its position when it comes to Russia? Is it just the defense dependency? Is it the traditional relationship? Is it, uh, you know, that India is part of a greater construct with Russia when it comes to RIC, BRICS and others. Where do you think the real reason for this lies? Well, in the past, with relation to Iran, 
there was at least the fact that we could say that there was an identified end game. With Russia, there is no identified end game. No one knows how this is going to end. So why do we get onto a train whose destination, you know, absolutely no one knows, including the, you know, the people sitting in the in the front engine don't know where this is going to end. So I think to sign on to sanctions with absolutely no end game in sight, I think is a recipe for a for very predictable negative consequences. All right. So Ambassador Venkatesh Parma, I'd like to thank you for joining us on the Hindus in Focus podcast. If you've been listening, thanks from the entire team. Thank you. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.